You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, as editor of LaborUnionNews.com, since the Amazon elections last week, I've been going through dozens and dozens of articles, posting what I think is important, and seeing most of the narrative being put out there and finding these little gems that aren't being shared widely. So I didn't line up a guest for this episode of Labor Relations Radio because I thought we could do a bit of a deeper dive into what's going on with Amazon and Starbucks arguably two of the most high-profile high union campaigns we've seen in years. Now, everything I'm going to share with you today is public information, if you know what you're looking for and want to dig deep enough. And I'm going to put a bunch of links under the audio portion of this episode for you to do some of this research on your own, if you care to. However, what we're going to cover today is a bit deeper than what you're seeing in the echo chamber headlines. And by echo chamber, I'm referring to the pro-union media that's spewing the same narratives about Amazon and Starbucks, perhaps with slight twists and varying degrees of advocacy, but it's the same narrative overall. So let's lay a foundation and start with Amazon. Here's a summary of the info that everyone's seeing in the headlines. Last week, the National Labor Relations Board counted ballots in two separate elections involving Amazon and two different unions. One, of, one was a rerun election in Bessemer, Alabama, with the RWDSU, which stands for the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, which is part of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And the other election was in Staten Island, New York, against the Amazon Labor Union, which is a what the press is describing is a scrappy little startup union that was started by a former Amazon assistant manager by the name of Chris Smalls, whom the company reportedly had terminated a couple years ago for organizing a protest about the company's response to COVID. Well, in the Bessemer election, the company won the ballot count 993 to the RWDSU's 875. However, there were 416 challenged ballots, which means ultimately they could determine the outcome. So that means the NLRB will figure out which, if any, of the challenged ballots will be opened. And that means also that the union could ultimately prevail. Now, as the RWDSUs already filed a bunch of unfair labor practices, even if the company prevails again, because this is a second election, it probably won't end down in Bessemer. Now, one other interesting note about Bessemer is that less than less than 40% of the eligible employees who are eligible to vote actually voted in the election. So out of the more than 6,143 eligible voters, only 2,375 voted. And that's according to the New York Post. That means that 3,768 employees will have to listen to whatever the outcome is made by a minority of employees. And if you're an advocate on either side, that low turnout is bad. 
So from the company's perspective, a low turnout means that a majority of the employees didn't care enough to vote. And from the union's perspective, when you have a low turnout like that, if you get into negotiations and you need to call workers out on strike, they're less likely to do so. So at least with regard to Amazon in Alabama, that one is a stay tuned. But the big Amazon story is the election outcome in Staten Island. Last Friday, the, Amer- the Amazon Labor Union, the independent union started by Chris Smalls, won an election with 2,654 voting yes and 2,131 voting no. So there was about a four or 500 vote spread there. And again, as in Alabama, the voters who participated were barely half of the more than 8,300 who were eligible to vote. So why the turnout was so low is anyone's guess. It may have had to do with the amount of turnover at Amazon, or it could be another reason. If there is another reason, I'm not privy to it. I'm just reporting on what's out there. Now, by pointing to the lack of voter turnout, that is not to diminish the significance of this particular win. For an independent union, Mr. Smalls and his teams of organizers, along with their support teams, which we'll get to in a few minutes, what they did is something remarkable. The media is portraying it as a, quote, David versus Goliath win, and in some measure it is. Since the election on Friday, Amazon, according to the New York Times, has said that it's evaluating its options, which includes potentially filing filing an objection due to the, quote, inappropriate and undue influence, end quote, by the National Labor Relations Board for suing Amazon in federal court last month. If it does, it may only be delaying the inevitable, and that is going to the bargaining table. However, winning an election, whether it's Chris Small's union, the Amazon Labor Union, or any other union, that is only the first step in labor relations. So the next step is collective bargaining. And as most labor relations radio listeners know, collective bargaining means that the union and the company have to sit down and negotiate in good faith, which means reading, meeting at reasonable times and places for the purposes of reaching an agreement. But to quote the National Labor Relations Board, the obligation does not, however, compel either party to agree to a proposal by the other, nor does it require either party to make a concession to the other. So assuming that Amazon and Mr. Small, I think it's Mr. Small or Smalls, I don't know, whatever, and his comrades sit down at the bargaining table, at some point, it will likely be some time before they actually get an agreement. And as Josh Edelson noted in Bloomberg Business Week over the weekend, the Amazon union still has a daunting road ahead. So that's the background and some of the narrative around Mr. Small's win. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. First of all, keep this in the back of your mind as we start to talk about the campaign itself. Unions across the United States, and this is all unions, win a majority of the NLRB elections like the ones at Amazon and Starbucks. In fact, over the last 10 years, the average win rate is 70.4% of the NLRB elections conducted. In 2021, for example, unions won 77% of the NLRB elections, and these are representational elections, by the way. 
And in 2020, unions won 71%. And 2019, which was before the pandemic, unions won 75% of the elections held. So when people say that unions are the so-called underdog in these contests, it's somewhat misleading. Now, one of the reasons unions aren't succeeding in unionizing more workers is not because they're losing elections. Again, they're losing, they're winning a majority of them, losing a minority of them. It's because they're conducting fewer elections. And that, my friends, is a result of their spending more money on politics than on organizing. In fact, from 2010 to 2019, the number of union representation elections dropped by 31%. And that's according to the North West Labor Press. And that was even down from the decade before that. However, that's a topic for a different episode of Labor Relations Radio, but keep the union win rates in the back of your mind as we discuss this. Now, back to Amazon's loss in Staten Island. How did the proverbial Goliath lose to an upstart independent union? Well, it seems like there's a few reasons, and if you start reading enough of these articles, you'll be able to start spotting them. First of all, the company had a lot of unforced errors. Second of all, they were out-campaigned. And third of all, they underestimated what they're up against. So here's an excerpt out of uh, Bloomberg Businessweek. There's three paragraphs here, but we're going to go through these. A committee of dozens of employees, and the quote, a committee of dozens of employees spent months asking coworkers during shifts and breaks what they wanted to change about their jobs and whether they really trusted HR to make that happen. The committee members spent another 20 or 30 hours a week talking to colleagues outside the building, at bus stops, and at their homes, says Connor Spence, a warehouse worker whose ALUs, that's Amazon Labor Unions, vice president of membership. The activists emphasized the do-it-yourself, worker-led nature of the group, and they seized opportunities to stage confrontations with management, like showing up at anti-union meetings to which they hadn't been invited. Quote, we had a union already before the election even happened, Spence says. The election process was about kind of formalizing it. Now, here's the kicker. Spence says... The campaign was boosted by management's recent missteps, such as calling the police when Smalls came to drop off food for workers in the parking lot and announcing that the dress code would be tightened so workers would have to start wearing approved safety shoes from Amazon subsidiary Zappos. The effort was also buoyed by a number of newer employees who specifically got hired at the Amazon warehouse in the hopes of helping the union win, end quote. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those three paragraphs. Number one, the employee committee solicited employees' grievances, which management can't do. The committee spent hours, this is number two, the committee spent hours and hours talking to people on non-working time outside the building, at bus stops, and at their homes. Also something management cannot do. Number three, they stage confrontations which, uh, with management, which is smart psychologically, because if management's not prepared to handle that, it shows fence sitters that the union may have more power than it actually does, and people tend to shift their support to whatever they perceive has strength. And by be being disruptive in meetings, the union supporters were able to throw off the presenters 
off message as evidenced by some of the leaked audio tapes that made the media over the last several weeks. Now, in the minds of employees, they also blurred the line between having a union versus voting to unionize for the purpose of bargaining so that the election process, to quote Mr. Spence, was just about kind of formalizing it. So this, by the way, is a clever tactic that more and more unions seem to be deploying today, that the election, you know, you're already unionized. You just need to vote to formalize it now. You're already, you know, you're already part of it. Now, here are two major things that, at least in my opinion, cannot be underscored enough. First, by all accounts, they made their campaign about Chris Smalls. And when they had Chris Smalls arrested for delivering food, which made national news, they turned him into a martyr. They, they drew even more attention to him when they didn't need to. Second, assuming this is accurate, they forced people to buy safety shoes from Amazon sub- subsidiary Zappos, which basically is, is just throwing that corporate greed nomenclature right in the employee's face or faces. Now, number six, and last but not least, Amazon got seeded with a bunch of union plants or moles or whatever you want to call them. In other words, as Bloomberg notes, these workers were hired for the sole purpose of unionizing Amazon. So that sort of explains what happened in Staten Island, but there's more. A lot of news media out there has portrayed Chris Smalls and his Amazon labor union as a scrappy little startup. And that's not entirely accurate. It's not the whole story. While Small's Amazon labor union is an independent union, they had a lot of help beating Amazon. And this is what's not being reported in places like Bloomberg or even really in the left-wing media like Vice.com or anything like that. They're not really covering some of this. For example, according to the ALU's own website, Unite Here, which is a union with 300,000 members, lends us office space in Manhattan. Organizers, in other words, Unite Here's organizers and advisors, like President Jose Maldonado. The United Food and Commercial Workers, which has 1.2 million members, supports us with lawyers like Eric Milner, who have successfully successfully filed for two union elections against Amazon, despite all their attempts to crush our right to vote. They've also supplied us with office space in Staten Island and advisors like Gene Bruskin, who have won hundreds of strong union contracts across decades of organizing across the labor movement. The OPEIU has supplied us with another attorney, Seth, Seth Goldstein, who has successfully filed over 20 unfair labor practice uh, unfair labor practices against Amazon for their illegal union busting, end quote. So that's off of Amazon Labor Union's own website. Now, in addition to that, the communist online publication People's World shared a bit of deeper insight into the help that went into beating Amazon. And by the way, for those who might get all twisted up about my using the term communist when talking about People's World, this is from People's World's about page. People's World traces its lineage to the Daily Worker newspaper founded by communist socialist union members and other activists in Chicago in 1924. End quote. New quote. People's World continues to feature Marxist analyst and opinion 
developed by the Communist Party, as well as voices from other currents of the labor and people's movements, end quote. So that's people's world. So don't get all twisted when I use the term communist online publication. So here's what People's World wrote about the union win at Amazon. Quote, Over the last year, ALU has garnered support from grassroots community groups, unions, as well as political and socialist organizations. Individuals inside and outside these organizations had been primarily showing their support through donation to the ALU Solidarity Fund on GoFundMe, coming out, of, out to rallies, writing articles, and sharing information on social media. However, now the Amazon Labor Union had a much more specific ask. Help the union talk to workers about the importance of a union victory. It was clear that one-on-ones inside the warehouse would not be enough to reach every worker in time. Canvassing and phone banks would be necessary and hundreds of volunteers would be needed. The ALU has organized canvases to go door-to-door and phone banks for volunteers, but also encouraged organizations to help set up their own phone banks in addition to other efforts, such as fundraisers and solidarity rallies. For the last month, and here's key, phone banking events have been happening multiple days a week at the Communist Party headquarters, as well as Unite Here Local 100 office in Manhattan. CPUSA clubs, which is Communist Party USA, across the country have mobilized for remote phone banking with hundreds of members contributing their time to the ALU struggle. In addition, additionally, UFCW Local 342, CWA Local 1102, and the Coalition for Black Trade Unionists, which has been mobilizing organizers to support ALU since last summer, have contributed their resources to contacting Amazon workers. It is not only these organizations, however. Locally in New York City, more than And in more than a dozen states across the country, ALU has been recruiting volunteers. Some are Amazon workers at other facilities, also hoping to unionize their warehouses in the near future. Others are members of unions, including OPEIU, UE, NNOC, USW, SEIU, and the laborers. There have been support... There has been support from community organizations such as New York's Rolling Library, the People's Forum, and Make the Road. And there's been support from some members in other socialist organizations, including the IWW and DSA. SAG-AFTRA member Susan Sarandon even stopped by a phone bank recently to voice her solidarity. End quote. Now, in other words... While Chris Smalls was the face of the campaign against Amazon Staten Island, it was a large effort executed by a large number of organizations. And by the way, who wrote that article for People's World? Well, one of the two writers was Justine Medina. One of the New York Times articles over the weekend described Miss Medina as a, quote, box packer and union organizer, end quote. But she's a little bit more than that. Miss Medina is actually a co-chair of the New York Young Communist League, which may help explain the amount of support the Communist Party gave to beating Amazon. So while the media narrative has been that Chris Smalls and his co-workers defeated Amazon single-handedly like David and Goliath, so to speak, the reality is it was a team effort with a lot more help than the newspapers are reporting on. Now, I get why the David versus Goliath story is an appealing one to the media, but 
in my opinion, I think it's also um, the capitalism versus communism because clearly Chris Smalls had help from communists and socialists and a bunch of other people. That would also be a fascinating story or angle. Uh, but for some reason, the mainstream union press doesn't want to cover that. And that I'm talking about Bloomberg. I'm talking about Vice, all the others. They don't want to be exposed or have that whole connection exposed. But it's it's kind of a fascinating story if you're a writer. In any case, let's move on to Starbucks. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So you might be wondering, what does Starbucks have to do with Amazon? Well, as you probably know, Starbucks is under assault by the Service Employees International Union. It's been in the headlines for months. SEIU has a subsidiary called Workers United, and Workers United was part of Unite Here before its then-president, Bruce Rayner, teamed up with then-SEIU president, Andy Stern, about a decade ago and blew up Unite Here, split them off, and went to work for the SEIU as Workers United. Well, Workers United began going after Starbucks late last year. And so far, and I don't know a way to put this politely, but Starbucks is getting its ass handed to them. The company has won one out of 11 or so elections. The union has won at least 10. However, as of now, according to unionelections.org, there are 175 open petitions at the National Labor Relations Board, which are covering about 4,600 workers. And that's changing daily. So if you're interested in keeping up with that, uh, if you go to laborunionnews.com, go to the upper right corner if you're on your laptop, and there's a link to unionelections.org. Or if it's in the fourth column, if you happen to go on your phone now in the scheme of things at starbucks that's a lot of union organizing fending off you know 175 petitions or whatever it is that's a lot of organizing activity and and of course the pro-union media is slamming the company for hiring lawyers and and doing what's called union busting and i'm not really sure how much they're doing because they're losing their butts so much but anyway um if Say 200 Starbucks stores are unionizing uh, or did get unionized. That's that's about 2% of Starbucks footprint. They've got 9,000 stores in the United States. The question is, what happens if it continues to expand? So from an outsider looking in perspective, it appears that Amazon and Starbucks do have some similarities. Both are under both are under assault. Um, both are born out of the Seattle area. They they appear to pride themselves as being, quote, progressive employers. Amazon, for its part, and perhaps it's due to the pressures to stay union-free, they've stayed ahead of the curb, curve in, in terms of wages paid, and they offer good benefits to their employees. And there's a whole backstory to the wages um, and UPS and the Teamsters, but uh, Amazon actually, at least the last time I looked, they actually start their employees at a higher rate of pay than does the uh, Teamsters contract, at least in the logistics side, the Teamsters contract with UPS. So that's that's lining up a whole fight for next year between Teamsters and UPS. That That's making some other headlines, but that's also a different episode of Labor Relations Radio. So likewise, though, um, Starbucks also has extraordinary benefits for its employees. I don't really know what their pay is. I think they're tipped and they get some sort of, um, you know, the hourly pay plus tips or whatever. But in any case, whether employees in 
either organization know the value of their benefits or even that they could lose some of those benefits as a result of negotiations? I have no idea. The other thing is, um, despite their business differences, in other words, what industries they're in uh, and their, quote, progressive values, both organizations seem to have a business model. And this is kind of important that in some degrees is he, the, it adheres to Taylorism. And Starbucks may be less so than Amazon, uh, but we'll come back to Taylorism in, in just a couple minutes. Third, both Amazon and Starbucks, and this is hugely important, employ a generation of employees, in particular, younger employees who classify themselves as Gen Z or millennials, and maybe they're managed by millennials, but they are Gen Z employees who are more inclined to support socialism than capitalism. And in fact, according to a 2019 study, Gen Z workers, which were back then 18 to 24, they actually support socialism 61% um, compared to capitalism. So that that is kind of a backdrop. Now, let me let me talk about Taylorism a little bit. Um, I started wondering when Starbucks was getting hit, why would all these workers who have really good benefits and seem all happy and their pink hair and their you know green hair and and piercings, if this progressive company want a union? And there's initially some articles that had come out, and the union was sending the CEO letter every time they filed. Um, the RC petition saying, well, you know, here's, we're filing a petition and we don't really have a lot of issues, but we just want a voice at the table or seat at the table. And then it started morphing into specifics. Now, if you've been around labor relations long enough, workers typically do not unionize unless there's issues in the workplace. And issues in the workplace can be bad supervisors, low pay. It could be lack of voice. In other words, they go to their management and management just ignores them. It could be safety issues, whole number of things. Well, at first with Starbucks, it didn't appear there was a whole lot of issues there. But slowly but surely, there started being more issues coming out in the media. Um, for example, understaffed because of the pandemic. Uh, during the middle of the pandemic, Starbucks introduced new drinks for the baristas to start making and you know without having the staff there to manage the counter and the and the drive ups uh the takeout so to speak you know they're short staffed having to learn new things and having to do it all on the amazon side there's been a number of articles out there and in fact there's legislative efforts at least out in california to um monitor the productivity of the workers so the, the one of the issues with Amazon is that the company has instituted what is commonly referred to as Taylorism or the 21st century form of Taylorism. Frederick Taylor was a individual who back in the early 1900s developed something called scientific management, which is the timing of motion or time and motion studies. And the purpose of doing that was to maximize the output per worker. Well, this started coming back into fashion, so to speak, probably about 15 or so years ago when 
and this is me personally, I started noticing logistics companies, clients, and others starting to institute these time and motion studies. People on their pickers and packers in the high lifts would have to get time to figure out how long it would take for them to pick a package or pick a produce or whatever they're picking. And it cause disgruntlement among the employees. Now, part of the problem with the time and motion studies is they were oftentimes tied to their compensation. So the faster you picked, the more money you'd make in theory. But most of the formulas that were coming out, people didn't understand their pay. So that created a whole host of union issues back probably 10 or 15 years ago. So one of the issues that I know has been part of Amazon's issues, and it appears to be part of Starbucks issues, is what could be referred to as Taylorism. Now, as I as I used to say 10, 15 years ago when discussing this with management, you know, you guys are coming out and doing these types of time and motion studies. Well, what do you think happened back in the 1920s and 30s when Frederick Taylor or scientific management really took hold? Unions. That helped give rise to the strawberry strike, in uh, which was in Detroit, where Jimmy Hoffa was a, an organizer, um, and it gave rise to a lot of union organizing in the auto industry. So, kind of bear that in mind as we talk about, you know, what are the causal factors of some of these union campaigns, Starbucks or Amazon. If you're going to institute Taylorism or scientific management, time and motion studies, it's likely to have a backlash. And that appears to be happening with both Amazon as well as Starbucks. Now, the other thing that is going on at Starbucks, which I spoke a little bit about talking about Amazon, is that there is a huge support group out there helping the Starbucks workers unionize called the Democratic Socialists of America. Now, if you go on and just, you can do this yourself, go on and type in DSA Starbucks workers, and you will find a lot of links to support groups, support events, rallies, etc., with the Democratic Socialists of America supporting Starbucks workers unionizing. Now, the question may be, why would DSA be helping Starbucks workers unionize? And this goes back to history, but let me give you a quick excerpt in terms of why the DSA is working with today's unions. This is part of a uh, recording that was made last year during a DSA uh, Zoom meeting talking about the PRO Act. And this is Sidney Kazarian, who's um, one of the leaders of the DSA, one of the various committees that they have. It's easy to feel powerless, but we are socialists and we don't do what's easy. We do what is necessary. We do what is moral and we do what is right, even when it's hard. And to echo Sarah Nelson on our first PRO Act call, we have power. We have power and we're building it across this country. DSA is building power in cities, suburbs and rural towns. We are building power in our chapters, our workplaces, our apartment buildings, our schools, and in government. We are building power collectively with our neighbors, coworkers, fellow union members, and communities. DSA does this because we know that we, the working class, are more powerful together, powerful enough to change the world. We know that we are collectively powerful because we have demonstrated that power time and time again. 
We saw it when the outcry from tenants and organizers resulted in an eviction moratorium, and when nurses, bus drivers, and factory workers went on strike and won PPE or hazard pay. When the working class gets organized, we've toppled tyrannical bosses and colonial empires. We've won the eight-hour workday, social security, unemployment insurance, and civil rights. We've staved off privatization and pipelines, put socialists in government. We have power. And when we organize collectively, we can win big things. All right. So that excerpt of the DSA Zoom call, um, that was a short excerpt of about an hour and 20 minutes. But I wanted to share that with you just to give you a little context in terms of what's going on. We know that Amazon was backed by the DSA, the Communist Party USA, and a whole bunch of others. We know that the DSA is supporting the Starbucks workers unionizing. And we know that Gen Z workers like uh, socialism. So I share all that with you to give you a little bit of context. This um, battle that has been going on within the union movement goes back all the way to the 1880s. And that goes to the Knights of Labor, to the AFL, and socialists, as we call them today, which could have been anarchists, communists later, etc. Socialists have always viewed unions as the gateway to establishing their socialist utopia. And they have always been around unions. They have taken over some unions. Some of them, uh, some unions even today are more socialist than others. And that battle that has been going on is now at the forefront. And I share that with you because companies don't recognize this. Most of the media won't cover it, but it's there. It's been going on for decades and decades and decades. One of the reasons I left the union movement, and there were several, was that I saw this battle that was happening and being a supporter of freedom or liberty under the guise of, um, say, Samuel Gomper's form of unionism, I found that the movement of unions towards socialism was becoming more apparent. And this was going back almost 30 years ago. So I've been trying to wake people up to this, knowing that it's been coming um, for the last 15 years. Every time I've blogged about it, I've written about it, I've pointed it out. I get called red baiting, uh, right wing extremist, all that sort of stuff. But it's there. You just have to recognize it. Now, I'm going to leave you with a couple quotes, um, and this doesn't really have anything to do with Amazon and Starbucks, but this is the battle that is going on. This is almost a pure battle of capitalism versus communism or socialism. Now, one of the things, if you like workers, um, if you like helping workers, in many regards, they are unfortunately being used as tools in this battle because, again, socialists have always found that they need the unions in order to establish their socialist utopia. Today, they're calling it the Green New Deal. You know, 25 years ago, it was just flat-out utopia. In any case, back in 1903, Samuel Gompers, who didn't die until the 1920s, was very specific in his disdain for socialists. And he stated at one of the AFL conventions, I want to tell you, and this is a quote, I want to tell you, socialists, that I have studied your philosophy, read your works upon economics, and not the meanest of them, studied your standard works, both in English and German, have not only read but studied them. 
I have heard your orators and watched the work of your movement the world over. I have kept close watch upon your doctrines for 30 years. That would be the 19 or 1870s. Have closely associated with many of you and know what you think and what you propose. I know too what you have up your sleeve. And I want to say that I'm entirely at variance with your philosophy. I declare to you, I am not only at variance with your doctrines, but with your philosophy. Economically, you are unsound. Socially, you are wrong. Industrial, industrially, you are an impossibility. And that, again, was in 1903. In 1918, Samuel Gomper stated, Socialism holds nothing but unhappiness for the human race. Socialism has no place in the hearts of those who would secure the fight for freedom and preserve democracy. So I share all of this with you as listeners because there is more going on than just campaigns at Amazon and Starbucks. There's a lot of stuff that is not being reported in the media. It's out there. You just need to find it or look for it and then find it. In any case... Those are some things I wanted to share with you about Amazon and Starbucks that um, we're really not seeing reported. It's It's a different kind of battle, and obviously Amazon and Starbucks are losing that battle right now. And whether it folds into a greater portion of the workforce, we'll have to see in the future. Thanks for listening to another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.